Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Russia has launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, in the words of Ukraine's foreign minister. As we record at midday on Thursday, there are reports of tanks and troops moving into Ukraine and missiles directed near its main cities. So what should democratic governments do now? The US, the European Union, the UK had already brought in sanctions earlier in the week. The Johnson government's measures, however, attracting criticism on all sides in Parliament for ineffectiveness. But there is now a real question about what countries can do and should aim to do. And with Foreign Secretary Liz Truss warning that Europe is facing its most perilous situation since the early 20th century, are the UK and its allies guilty of failing to have recognised the threat posed by Russia? Well, joining me to try and answer these huge questions and to discuss what comes next is a trio with a deep understanding of Russia and security threats. IFG researcher Alex Nice, who used to coordinate the Russia programme at think tank Chatham House, makes his podcast debut. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us. And I'm very pleased that Kath Haddon, our senior fellow with an academic background in national security, is with us too. Hi, Kath. Hello, Bronwyn. I'm also delighted that we're joined by Dominic Grieve, former Conservative MP and from 2015 to 2019, the chair of Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee. Hi, Dominic. Good morning, Bronwyn. Very, very good to have you with us. Well, let's try and take stock of the current situation. On Monday, after a lengthy address to the nation by his nation, by Vladimir Putin, which he essentially rejected Ukraine's right to exist as an independent sovereign state, Russia recognized the independence of two breakaway territories in eastern Ukraine that are controlled by Russian-sponsored paramilitaries. And now this latest move. Alex, what's your sense of how much this has escalated? Essentially, it's escalated as far as military and security intelligence services had been warning it might. This really does appear to be a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, as the foreign minister of Ukraine has said. As you said, on Monday, Putin spoke to the Russian people and essentially denied that Ukraine existed as an independent sovereign country. They then recognized relatively small breakaway territories in eastern Ukraine. But this morning, Russia has moved beyond those territories, invading the rest of Ukraine and appears to be striking at cities across the country. You mentioned there the kind of reasons that Putin is giving for his actions. Has he expanded on those? What do we know about what Putin is trying to do? Putin's concerns and reasons for this are, are, are various. Part of it, uh, he would claim, is a, a security risk posed by NATO, by NATO expansion. But, but more broadly, it's based around Ukraine's status as an independent democratic state on Russia's borders, which has become intolerable to the Russian government. So th there are various factors driving this. I think what is very concerning is that whilst there had been warnings from the security intelligence services of an invasion, it was in many ways hard to imagine this scenario despite that, because this is not a popular war, either in Ukraine or in Russia, with many Russians. It's not like the annexation of Crimea. It, will be, it could be an extremely costly war for Russia, both economically and even militarily. And it's not clear what the final outcome is from, let's just, from its actions. Let's just hold that thought. You've touched on some really important points there about, about the cost of Russia itself of this. Dominic, this is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? I mean, there's a sense of incredulity you hear in some capitals that 
Russia's president has essentially launched um, war in Europe. Yes, and yet at the same time, uh, I'm not altogether surprised because I remember a discussion around the cabinet table when Putin took over the Crimea. That was a gross violation of international law. It was annexing a part of the sovereign territory of a neighbouring country. And I remember saying then, he's done it once, he will do it again. His playbook is entirely that of Hitler's. It's fascinating, right down to the language. Hitler described Czechoslovakia as a pistol pointed at the heart of Germany, and Putin speaks about the Ukraine as a dagger pointed at the heart of Russia. So I have to say, I think the the signs have been clear for a long time, that Putin is a man who will use any means to further and advance his own agenda, including waging war if he thinks he can get away with it. And the difficulty we've had is that over the last six, seven years, we have not succeeded in putting in a credible deterrence to prevent him from doing that. The sanctions we imposed after the takeover of the Crimea have been, they certainly had some effect, but they haven't been enough to deter him. And in uh, recent times, I think he's looked at the state of Western Europe and of the Atlantic Alliance and NATO and considered that he can get away with it. And in a sense, we've almost said he can, because although we are talking about imposing further sanctions and other things, we have not said that this would be met with military force if he were to invade the sovereign territory of another state. Let me just pick up your your first point. You're absolutely, I think, right about this, this long obsession of his and the consistency of the language. I, I had dinner with him when I was foreign editor of the Times. It was in June um, 2007 at his residence outside Moscow. And this is a long time ago now. And I'm really struck by how the language has stayed exactly the same. The obsession with the supposed aggression of, of NATO and the European Union and the obsession with getting back the lost lands of, of, of greater Russia. So we know he's been brooding on this for a long time and indeed preparing it. In, in short, what should democratic, maybe not in short, what should democratic governments do now? It's very difficult. I think that simply talking about sanctions is insufficient. Now, it's right, we have taken a decision that we're not going to use military force to try to eject him on the territory of the Ukraine from this violation of international law. But I do think the government should be thinking very carefully about taking what I would describe as all the legal sanctions short of engaging in armed conflict in response. That is freezing the assets of all Russians in the United Kingdom, unless, of course, they are refugees from Putin who are entitled to political asylum, expelling them, making the United Kingdom inaccessible to Russian goods and making the United Kingdom sovereign territorial waters inaccessible to Russian-flagged ships and cargo, and indeed overflights. I think one has to go the whole way, because I, I don't see otherwise how there is going to be any marker down to say that this is behaviour which is going to deliver pariah status for a country that does this in the 21st century, when it was signed up to the UN Charter and at the same time, it is grossly violating its terms. So I I think that the response that we saw, admittedly, before he'd actually started the general invasion of simply sanctioning by freezing the assets of seal four people is is insufficient. And I, I hope the government is talking to its allies about how there can be a really massive response. 
And I think the other thing we're going to have to do, I'm afraid, and it doesn't come as any pleasure, is we're going to have to rearm. Because the simple truth is that we've allowed Russia, which spends, I can't remember, about a quarter of its GDP of the government's uh, revenues are spent on on defence, has enabled it to build up an armoury, which we are in fact able to counter, but not able to counter with the facility which our economic strength ought to enable us to do. Okay, again, you made many interesting points there, and I want to come back to them, both military and what the point of our response is now. But Kath, Dominic Grieve was just touching on what the Johnson government has done so far and and, 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 and whether or not that was effective at all. He'd be saying not. The, the government's response has been criticised of falling far short of its big stick rhetoric, short of what the US and the EU have done. Do you, do you think this is a misjudgment by Johnson? I mean, it is in terms of the response that you then had. And I mean, with any of these things, what you're saying in public and the signals that you're sending out are just as important as the sort of practical implications of them. So the fact that it then was portrayed as as being something that didn't seem very harsh, you know, is in itself a failure. But why they've done it, I don't know. I mean, there was a general discussion in the, the weeks running up to this about what a full-scale invasion was compared to an incursion and what level of sanctions would be brought in at any different stage. And in those sort of hours, you know, and, and days before that first action, there was some discussion of, you know, would they bring in the full measure of sanctions then or save some for, for a, what we have now seen? So whether there was pressure on the UK to not go as hard as it might have wanted to or whether or not it was the UK putting pressure, I don't know. Whether or not it's it's lacking the tools, because as Dominic said, we've got you know a problem in this country in terms of how closely intertwined Russian money is in the UK economy. I honestly don't know. I think today is going to be the test for that. I mean, the Prime Minister has addressed the nation now. This is sort of lunchtime and he's expected this afternoon on Thursday to set out sanctions. So so by the time people are listening to this, we, we may know the answer. But he has said there will be a massive package of economic sanctions that would be designed to hobble the Russian economy. Uh, so again, they are talking big on this. They are implying that not only will these be far bigger than we have seen before, um, that they will have an impact and also that the West will be coordinated on it. And I think that, that last point is something that people have been very worried about of would there be pressures to, to leave aspects out of it. So I think they'll be big. I think the question is going to be whether or not some of these sanctions still see them uh, failing to tackle specific issues. You know, a lot of people talking about the SWIFT banking system, but there's going to be specific questions about parts of the economy, how we deal with energy, you know, how effective are these actually going to be? Yeah. And what about our own vulnerability to what Russia does in turn? I'm thinking cyber, energy prices, all kinds of things. How do you think the government ought to handle that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that, you know, our defence and security apparatus has been thinking about for years. So if they've not got plans in place, then what the hell is the point of any of our resilience planning for this kind of stuff? That's the entire purpose of it. We do have, you know, very good National Security Centre. We had Kieran Martin, who was the inaugural head of it on the podcast last year. But again, the Prime Minister said that, you know, they'll be doing everything possible to, to keep our country safe. I don't know what that means, because I'm sure there will be many people worried about people throwing around the term World War Three. But in actual fact, it's going to be things like the economy, like cyber attacks and, and so forth that people would be worrying about. Putin, again, has been very bombastic on all of this, you know, towards the West of, of talking about consequences greater than any you have faced in history. But 
a lot of that could be bluster. So I, I, I don't know. Again, we are in you know a very confusing time at the moment and, and seeing what will happen. And it is obviously going to leave people um, very worried. So yes, the UK government's got to do a lot of, of reassuring people as much as it's got to do confronting Russia. Let's dig in a bit to our second topic in this very intertwined discussion about sanctions and other responses and how they work. Alex, perhaps just take us and start with what, what's the point of our response at this point? What are we, what are we trying to do? Well, there, there, are, there are several things we're trying to uh, achieve. There is still a, a possibility of shaping the outcomes and Russia's behaviour in Ukraine This goes back to your first point that Putin, we don't know exactly what Putin's end goal might be, and possibly he hasn't completely decided himself. Yes, we don't know. And so a a strong response now could possibly shape the outcome in a different way. Secondly, as Dominic made clear, essentially Russia is a revisionist state and has rejected uh, the basis for European security, which involved the recognition of borders established at the end of the Cold War. So there needs to be a clear signal through very strong uh, sanctions that this is an unacceptable breach of international law norms to discourage further efforts to to destabilize European security or, or indeed further military conflict led by Russia. In terms then of the levers that can be used, the most ruinous sanctions would be restrictions on exports of oil and gas. But that is very hard to imagine, given the impact, the economic impact that would have on the US and and UK and EU and other countries. The next stage down is extremely severe sanctions on the financial sector, which would be very disruptive. And then sanctions on broad sectors of Russia's economy. And and that's getting into the types of sanctions, but just still sticking with the purpose. Do you think there is any possibility that these could undermine Putin himself? As I said at the start, this is not a popular war. And popular opinion in Russia, even in what is essentially a police state, a very autocratic regime, matters. Perhaps at the moment, it doesn't matter to the Kremlin as much as as we assumed. But in the longer term, those concerns, those economic concerns do shape politics, even in a regime such as Russia. Dominic, what's what's your view of the purpose of of, of sanctions and other responses now? Deterrence seems to have failed. Is is this just punishment? I I certainly worry that just more sanctions and not grasping the nettle about the economic hit that we might have to take uh, to isolate Russia and to show that, in fact, Russia will be forced out of the international system by these actions. I worry that we're not prepared to take those measures. Now, I realise it's a finely balanced judgment and the government has my sympathy on that. But sanctions have failed so far. And it strikes me that they're likely to fail in future. And what we should be worried about is that this revisionism could easily extend to the Baltic states. If he thinks there's weakness, he will try to exploit it. And we don't know how this current crisis is going to unfold, whether there is going to be prolonged warfare or whether, in fact, the overwhelming might of the Russians will crush the Ukrainians quickly and what will happen in the Ukraine thereafter. But I think it's likely that we're in for a period of very serious and dangerous instability in in the Ukraine and the whole region. And I think we have to show that we are willing to pay the price for making Russia pay the price of this aggression. And if we don't do that, then I think Putin will simply conclude, well, this is another blip and we will get over it. And he he will not back off and he will not consider 
peaceful alternatives and we will have a much longer term problem as a consequence. And we've seen obviously the example of Germany cancelling the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which many people were, you know, thought that Germany might not do for precisely that point of how painful it was. You were chair of the IOC, which looked in detail at, at Russia and at the if you like, the cost to Britain of this. How great is that cost of doing something much more extensive? Kath was talking about how intertwined the economy is with Russian money. I fear that we have allowed Russian money to be an important part of our financial system within the city of London. And with it, the spin-offs of all the enablers who are there to facilitate that money and being placing it on international money markets and being invested. So there's clearly going to be a cost. And I'm afraid, I think, that over the last few years, the real criticism that can be made of us is our glaring failure, quite frankly, to address this. Because leaving aside the strategic issues concerning Putin, this money has had, I think, a corrupting influence on on our national life. Uh, And therefore, it's something that we should be very concerned about. Uh, but we, but it, I don't. I think it's capable of being overcome. We're just going to have to be willing to take the hit, and perhaps in the longer term, we may breathe a sigh of relief that we've taken that hit and finally excluded these funds from our economic uh, activities. But of course, the, the, there are uh, potential difficulties. Nobody can be surprised about this. As chair of the ISC, one of the most notable features of the our report on Russia was the total unanimity of those who came to give evidence in front of us about the way in which, firstly, Russia sees no distinction between economic and state interests. Secondly, sees its diaspora abroad, including in Britain, as there to further its state interests. And because Russia is ultimately a mafia state, it uses and manipulates those who are in the United Kingdom according to President Putin's will. And that is something that we have frankly tolerated and was the subject of the concern which the ISC raised. Now, we do have lots of levers. I agree, we have very good cyber security, probably the second best in the Western world. After the United States, we have very good intelligence services. But standing up to bullies on the international stage needs being willing to stand up, not to slither around trying to find devices for heading them off. There comes a moment where you've just got to say enough. And I would be interested to see whether the Prime Minister this afternoon is prepared to do that. Cathy, you've written a lot about government communications for us um, recently, mainly in the context recently of coronavirus. But how would you think that the Prime Minister might address this this question of the hit to Britain. It's obviously a very difficult time. We've got energy prices already going up and all kinds of pain still coming on from the coronavirus. And yet, you know, as Dominic's describing it, he's got to brace British people for much more pain. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think, you know, from what Dominic was saying at the moment, that that's almost starting to feel second order. Um, you What you do have in Parliament at the moment, it's quite interesting, is actually a lot of unity on that very point of standing up to Putin, to Russia on this, and a lot of unity that we need to take very strong action at this time. You've then got a, a quite a bit of a breakdown in terms of what people want to do. We had David Davis today talking about wanting, you know, aerial support. Others have been sort of, you know, talking about different sanctions that they'd like to be 
brought in and, and, you know, the different actions that they want. So there's a lot of debate going on around that, but a general unity, at least on the idea of, of, of strong action. And I think that is helpful when it comes to then conveying to the British public any impact of all of this. I mean, in a situation we're already in where we're seeing inflation, we're seeing energy prices already a problem. It's kind of, a you know, it goes into the question of how much more the government then has to do in terms of tackling that and further economic support. We don't, you know, we've got to this point where we're trying to start dealing with the consequences of COVID and the huge amount of money that we'd had to spend on it and trying to reduce that. So in another time when you then start to have to think about more domestic support, of course, it's going to heap more pressure on the government. But I think at this stage, the international situation probably outweighs those sort of domestic knock-on consequences and and I guess they'll get to them when they when they become clear what they are. Just one tiny sort of aspect of the dilemma for Britain the uh, whether Ofcom the regulator removes the RT license from the Russian broadcasting channel can you take us a bit into that dilemma? Yeah I mean well there's two arguments so, so Labour have put forward this argument that they want to see RT effectively you know removed from this country there's two elements there's the argument that the government's put back to to Labour which is it's not the right thing for you know the entire the standards that we're, we're, we are standing up for are that there should be a free press and therefore it is not the place of the government to interfere with a press even and even one that we don't like therefore it's the right role for Ofcom to look into their role in disinformation and whether or not that needs to be tackled. But actually, Alex made a very good point, which is the danger of a tit-for-tat retaliation by the Russians, because one of the UK's strengths is the quality of the BBC Russian service. So the BBC has all of these services around the world, and it's put a lot of money into the Russian service. And by all accounts, it is an extremely you know, good quality service that is, is doing an awful lot of you know, goods in terms of how Russia is then able or Russian citizens are then able to hear the news when they have such a sort of state controlled broadcast regime. So there is a risk of actually is the impact of, of removing RT really worth it, given the, you know, the dangers to, to BBC Russia. So that's just one one aspect mm. of it. I mean, you, you put it very well, you know, we might jump up and down and say, look, and there's more Britain can do, but actually some of these come with a sting. Dominic Grieve, has Brexit had an impact in all this? Could it possibly have encouraged President Putin to think that Europe was less united? I fear it has. I realise coming from an ex-Remainer like myself, that may have less impact. But I do think it has. I think the world knows my stance. But you see, it's notable that in the last five years, the United Kingdom's influence on the European continent difficult to describe it as not having been seriously prejudiced by Brexit. We're in a situation where um, only a few weeks ago, essentially, the French president was unwilling to engage directly with the prime minister because of the anger and contempt he felt towards him. This may be unjustified, but that's the reality of how bad relations were with our closest European security partner. And Meetings take place at EU level, and of course the EU is not about security, which everybody makes the point it's NATO, but the fact is it's at those EU meetings that there is the diplomatic engagement uh, between uh, countries, which then feeds in to wider organisations like NATO, and we're out of that loop. Uh, and it's been manifestly obvious over the last two years, only, only have to talk to European diplomats or travel in Europe 
that the United Kingdom has been marginalised. Now, as in fact, we have shown ourselves very much in accordance with our national tradition to have been pretty robust in the last few weeks over the threats to the Ukraine, we have been deprived of the opportunity of feeding that in, I think, to the European discourse, which might have had some impact earlier, for example, on persuading the Germans about Nord Stream. Uh, So although these are subtle things, and I don't wish to exaggerate it, I think the evidence is that the Western world is seen by Putin as being in disarray. Trump contributed to that. Putting the pieces together must be a high priority, and it must be a high priority for this government. But that means changing attitudes. And when you see a government which was prepared to violate international law itself by passing the Internal Markets Bill on the Northern Ireland Protocol... It's not helpful when at the same time it's denouncing Russia for its obviously much more serious violation of international law. Mm. A lot of this may require Britain to try and work much more closely with the European Union than it's managed at all in the last few years. Kath, sorry. Yeah, I was just, I mean, it's kind of actually what you just said, Bronwyn. I I think, I I know what you mean, Dominic, but I... I do think this that's the reality that we live in. And this is the, the test for actually can the new way in which the UK's relationship with both US and the EU will have to work. And and that's also a test for the EU because we have for long years heard this this discussion about the, you know, the UK's role within those big powers within the EU and balancing out German and French interests. And this is a test for the EU also to manage without the UK playing that role. And that includes those other nations that looked to the UK to help support them in their arguments with 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 Germany and France. So I, I don't think it's just about looking at it as a negative point from the UK's point of view. I think it's also about the reality of where we are and therefore, you know, the EU has to, to step up to that. So it's not just on the UK if there's problems there. Absolutely. And Alex, I wanted, I, I wanted to ask Alex um, just one bit of this. The centre of gravity of this podcast is about what Britain should do. But Alex, the, the EU's got quite a dilemma, doesn't it? It was in the middle of trying to crack down on Hungary and Poland um, for breaches of the EU's democratic principles. Uh, and um, just want a, a case to say, yes, it could withhold money from them if they they didn't come into line on this on the other hand it doesn't want to drive them to look eastwards does it no i mean i think i mean the eu has a will have a very important role to play and i hope the uk will play an important role with the eu in that in responding to the consequences of this conflict we could be looking at a serious refugee crisis in europe which will be focused i would imagine primarily on poland there will need to be very large aid packages to Ukraine, to Ukrainians, economic support, and depending on the outcomes of, of, of this invasion. The, the, this is the area where you know, the EU, I imagine, will take the lead and, and play an important part, and the, and the UK should be involved in it. I, I would imagine that the internal disputes, very serious disputes between Hungary and Poland and Brussels will be Put to one side for the moment. I, I just wanted to say I agreed with what Kath had said. Uh, it, this is a wake-up call and there is, a, because of what's happened, an opportunity. And I certainly agree that the ball is as much in the court of the EU as it is in EU countries as it is, and France, for example, as it is in ours. This illustrates that we have got to work more closely together. Countries like Hungary and Poland are going to have to think long and hard 
about where they stand on issues of ethical principles of being a Western democracy. And this has the capacity to bring us together. So uh, there may be some benefit that comes from that. And I certainly don't take the view that the fault lies entirely with the United Kingdom. Nonetheless, on the United Kingdom, I wanted to dig into our third slice of this. And, and that's looking a bit at the UK's past approach to Russia and how that might inform present and future. And Dominic, I wondered if I could start with you and the work your your committee did when you were chairing it, uh, the ISC, and whether you thought that we we Britain took um, too much of a peace dividend after the fall of the Soviet Union. We took our eyes off Russia. This is how one former minister put it to me, and that we we just didn't invest enough in looking at Russia. Yes, I'm afraid that that is the case. Uh, I think there were two reasons. Firstly, there was a period when uh, a lot of our security and intelligence was directed towards counterterrorism, particularly as a result of what was going on in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and, and other matters. So there was a period when Russia was a very low priority And had it been a higher priority, I think we might have understood better um, some of Putin's uh, strategies and been able to do more to counter them. And when finally we realized there was a lot of catch up to do. The second one is that one only has to look at the state of our armed forces at the moment to see that they've really been pared back to the bone. Now, it's true that they have some good equipment, but they are woefully short of quantity. Just to take an example, the idea was that we were going to have 12 Type 45 destroyers. Well, we've only got six. Uh, That's the extent of the way the cutbacks, uh, over-progressive cutbacks, have had an impact. And that's just one example amongst many. And the consequence of that is that when you're facing a country which has currently put 230,000 men into the field, with quite a lot of modern equipment, having milked their economy to pay for it, uh, we've actually got quite a serious military problem. And and I always get a little bit depressed as a past chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee because people keep on extolling our intelligence and cybersecurity. Well, that's wonderful. But I'm afraid that no amount of good intelligence or cybersecurity prevents you dealing with an armed, helps you to deal with an armed thug. And for that, you need deterrence. And I think that the whole of the Western alliance is short of that critical mass. And that, of course, is going to cost money and is a a very considerable challenge. But I think it's one that we are going to have to face up to. What you've described is a it's a difficult pivot, isn't it? Because we've had some years, decades, really, of of focusing on terrorism, non-state threats, as they're called. Suddenly, we're back to big power threats. Russia, we haven't mentioned China in in all this, uh, up against the US and so on. It's difficult for intelligence and security services to keep all these potential threats in play, isn't it? Yes, it is. And uh, one can make an argument that it's all very well sending a, a small carrier task force to show the flag in the South China Sea and in the Pacific. Not a bad thing to do, particularly at a time when the United Kingdom is trying to build some economic partnerships in that area. And we clearly have security interests there, but they're nothing like the security interests that we have in our immediate backyard. And that's where I think we have been lacking in foresight. We were talking earlier about the alliances which underpin our security domestically here and which are intimately European. 
and also having a credible military posture, which is sufficient to provide deterrence, not just to protect our island, but also the key allies without whom we can't survive. So I think we're going to have to do some a lot of thinking about this. And uh, that's going to be quite bad news for a government, which is already spending a lot of money, and is, I think, going to have to find how it's prioritises in the future. Could I add, Bronwyn, of course, there is a role in terms of deterring Russia and in terms of protecting UK security vis-a-vis Russia for the military, for the intelligence services, concerns about cyber security. But a lot of Russia's activity focused on the UK, as with the US, is about trying to destabilise our democracy. It's about disinformation. And building resilience to that involves partly about investing in the intelligence services and cybersecurity capacity, but it's also about institutions. It's about ensuring that we have transparent government. It's ensuring that we have strong and effective regulation of financial services. And it's, it's, it's about ensuring that we have trust in, in, in government because it's when those institutions start to weaken that, as we've seen in the US as well, that the opportunity for Russian operations to destabilize our politics are much more successful. And Kath, I wonder if you can pick up one one bit of that, which is about how the government talks about this. We've heard a lot more from uh, the British government, from the US, about calling out Russian threats, if you like. And we've had warnings from the Electoral Commission, uh, the outgoing chair, John Holmes, about things that we ought to do, particularly uh, clamping down on advertising around elections and so on. How much do you think can be done with a kind of aggressive transparency, if you like? There's a lot. I mean, you know, again, some of this is going to be sort of have to be washed up in the, the next few weeks and so forth. But there's obviously questions about funding of political parties going on, about transparency, as Alex says, about regulation of money coming into the country. I think there's an awful lot of issues that we need to look again at. And I suspect they will, you know, that will happen. I think, I mean, going back to your question earlier about the sort of the energy situation and possible vulnerabilities, it's likely that it may even impact things like looking again at, you know, our energy sector. We've we've seen in the past few years, many debates about future of nuclear and those have involved some of the stuff we're talking about, both relationships with EU members and, you know, France's role, but also the role of China and how much influence you want China to have over your infrastructure. And I mean, Germany, Alex made this point brilliantly the, the other day, you know, they've had three decades of foreign policy has effectively been washed away by this. And you know, huge impact on on their energy security. So I think there are going to be a lot of questions that we're going to be reflecting on in the the days, weeks, months, you know, even years to come. And I, I think that's, we just don't know what that's going to turn into at this stage. So let's take that as a cue to just a step back as we're coming to the end of this and just take stock of the slightly bigger picture. Alex, Putin's been there for 22 years. Is he going to stay? That's an incredibly difficult question to answer, Bronwyn. This is the highest risk gambit Putin has made to date. There may be an immediate military victory on the battlefield, but the consequences of this will be severe for Ukraine. But I could imagine that it will also be very serious for Russia. And I would say it could have all kinds of unpredictable consequences for Russia's internal politics. 
all, all to be seen. Kath, William Hague, former Foreign Secretary, has said relations you know, won't return to normal. This is going to change things across the world. Do you agree? I do. And I mean, one of the things we've not talked about is obviously the role of the United Nations. So there was a very powerful speech by the, the Kenyan representative this week. And yet again, we've talked about this many times over years and decades, but another huge challenge for the United Nations and whether or not, you know, it, an organisation that is effectively there to uphold, you know, international norms, the rule of law, and to take action against states that that undermine that. And, you know, whether or not you start to see this as a war crime, whether or not, you know, there are ways in which the international community, we talked a lot about the West, effectively, US and Europe and, and UK, but this is a question for for much wider for the whole world in terms of how we want states to to interact with each other and what happens when one state does this to to another. Dominic Grieve, just your your take. It's a huge gamble for Putin. I thought the meeting of his National Security Council was quite telling. There he was surrounded by a group of people, his key national security advisors, who looked like frightened rabbits caught in the headlights of a of a moving vehicle. They probably understood in a way that he doesn't seem to understand, or if he does, he's disregarded it, just what a massive risk Russia is taking. Because when you start to engage in generalised violence of this kind, where does it end? So I would like, one would like to think it's going to end badly for Putin and that there could be a backlash. But he runs an authoritarian state. He is a mafia head. He, that's how the system works there. And it was quite clear from the evidence we heard in the Intelligence and Security Committee. And at the moment, if he can secure a rapid suppression of the, U- of the Ukraine, then doubtless, in the usual way of these things, his standing will rise. But the cost in the longer term may be very considerable. And I certainly think he has weaknesses. And ultimately... We know in the context of Russia in, back in 1990, the people can express themselves in ways that the rulers do not like. And it seems to me that the capacity for that happening when you're about to take over 44 million people who don't want you is very considerable. Well, that's, uh, I guess, a, a ray of hope, though it's also the kind of hope that led us after the fall of the Soviet Union to think that maybe Russia was was contained in this way. There is obviously going to be much, much more that we and many others have to say on this. But just at the moment, that's it for this episode of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Alex Nice, Kath Haddon, and of course, Dominic Grieve. And thank you all for listening at home. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. It's hard to focus attention on domestic events right now, but we have a slate of exciting recordings coming up on subjects. You've forgotten the words already in this, like levelling up, devolution and the Northern Ireland protocol and you can find all our podcasts at itunes spotify whichever is your platform of choice please do leave us a review do check out our website instituteforgovernment.org.uk for all our latest work there's lots coming on all fronts not just this one in the words of united nations secretary general antonio guterres the world is now facing a moment of peril we may know more next week what that looks like have a good weekend